When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Lana Maimond, and today we have a conversation with Alda Waltrop Lewis, a senior research fellow at the Institute of Religion and Critical Inquiry, at Australian Catholic University. She holds a PhD in religion from Princeton University and has taught at Brown University. We will discuss thorough religion, Walden Woods, social justice, and the politics of asceticism, which was published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. I truly enjoyed reading this book, and I'm excited to discuss this with Alda. Welcome, Alda. Thank you so much for having this conversation, Elena. All right, so we'll start, and um, I would like to start with the fact that in the preface to your book, you discussed that you changed your initial research and writing focus from Appalachia to what you call a dead man rather than a living, struggling community. You also share that in this process, you learned much about yourself. Please share more about learning about yourself and about the process of changing your writing focus. Sure. Thanks so much. Yeah. So in the preface to the book, I describe this place that I grew up. So um, I was born and raised in Florida in a um, coastal community. And um, so I grew up in in cypress swamps and seagrass estuaries and in sandy pine forests. And I really love that place. It's beautiful. It's a biodiversity hotspot in North America um, near a town called Apalachicola. And so it was really caring about that community that drove me in graduate school. Um, I did a ethnographic project as a graduate student about environmental ethics in that small town near where I grew up. And um, I, I was, it was soon after Deepwater Horizon exploded in the Gulf of Mexico. And so, so it was really concerned for that place that made me interested in environmental ethics to begin with, which is a big part of what I work on, and um, made me want to study how people think about that in a town like that that's facing um, sort of multi-causal environmental harm. Um, 
that project was really difficult in a lot of ways because um, talking to people about the place that they love um, when they're grieving for it is um, moving and amazing. And the work people do to protect the places they love is incredible. Um, But I sort of found that it was quite a difficult project and I felt like I wasn't really ready for it in a lot of ways. Um, So instead, I turned my attention to this old 19th century author, Henry David Thoreau, and to the way that he cared about a particular place, Walden Pond, and to the reasons that he went to live there for a couple of years when he was a young person. Um, I, I think, I mean, you asked about learning about myself. I think that thing about caring for a place um, was really deep in my own upbringing and has just shaped everything that I've done ever since, including sort of learning about where I live now, which is on Wurundjeri country um, in Melbourne, Australia. And it's it's also just shapes all of the work that I do. Love it, loving somewhere um, motivation for a lot of my work. Uh, I, I was wondering when you said about um, the focus it seems to be very consistent, but the word you mentioned also grieving. Do you feel that this is still part of your research? Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the so the preface talks about this place I grew up and and loving it, and then the epilogue talks about grieving for it. The epilogue's called "On Mourning," and um, you know, I, I think no one listening to us right now doesn't have some experience of facing environmental harm and the loss that it's bringing about um, and wondering what to do with our anxiety and sadness about it. I mean, there's a really booming sort of academic field of work on this, and it's also just a personal experience that so many people have. Um, And I do think that my book was partly motivated by and wondering what to do with these kinds of um, responses to to uh, changing seasons. I mean, we love we love the seasons that we know, right? We we um, we live in a particular place, and as the days and months go by, um, there are signs to us from the world of of what's happening. Like flowers bloom sometimes, and. Um, here in the Southern Hemisphere now, of course, the days are getting longer. And uh, that's the part of the year that we're in. And so I'm sort of seeing seeing the promise of that in my own life. But as the climate changes, those signs to us are different. And and um, that's really disturbing and scary. So for sure, I, that the work of mourning for the things that are passing away is one thing that really motivates my work. But also, as the book tries to describe, um, um, we only mourn for good things that we've known. And I I think that one really important motivation for for, um, environmental ethics and and environmental politics really is this kind of more basic love for the things that are good. We mourn for them when we pass away, but we also fight for them so that they might not pass away. Uh, I was only um, share with you the fact that when I was reading your book, I felt that it was really driven by emotions, and probably that's why I felt so attached and engrossed in the reading. So thank you for doing this. It was really 
emotional, beautiful, and uh, provocative on, on the same time. So you mentioned that your work has um, is, is interdisciplinary, and you said um, the work I do is sometimes so interdisciplinary that I have the feeling it will all fall apart. The center cannot hold. All of us who do interdisciplinary work often wonder about this center, or as some of us, uh, some of us term it home. Could you share your thoughts on how interdisciplinarity informed your switch of focus and what exactly were your fears and whether they indeed materialized? Sure. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And I think, yeah, you're right. I want to know more about your work and your home for sure, because so many people are struggling or, you know, thinking about this, like what disciplines are for and why interdisciplinarity might be important and what ends it serves. Um, It seems to me that disciplines remain really important as sort of institutional organizations that can have budgets and (laughs) employ people. And yet um, so many of our studies uh, in this, in this period in academic life insist that um, disciplines are really built for serving inquiry. And, you know, I, I, as I think I indicated in the beginning, I really am driven by um, a beginning uh, that's about what I care about, right? So the beginning of the preface says what I care about. And, and I think that if you start there with something that you care about, then the disciplines are really meant to serve that end, to serve, to serve that care, to serve, um, whatever uh, you might be trying to accomplish for, for those things that, uh, for which you're having care. I did find, I mean, just with respect to the shift from the ethnographic project to this um, more kind of literary um, theoretical project, I, I did find it easier in some ways. I mean, definitely I felt less um, r- responsibility to people who were alive, which was a big part of the struggle with the ethnographic project. Um, uh, I found it more straightforward to hold myself accountable to a book than I did to hold myself accountable to a community. And, and in that sense, um, I may have in, in the process of changing from the ethnographic project to this more literary theoretical project, I may have narrowed the interdisciplinarity in a way. Um, but I hope that, uh, in the course of my career, which is still growing, I'll have the opportunity to, to struggle more with, um, even more disciplines. I mean, it's just so fun to read across areas and you learn so much by moving from one, um, uh, one discourse to another about how people think, you know, Uh, that's the thing. One of the things that I find really valuable about working interdisciplinarily is that, um, uh, changing your context is a really important way to learn new things. I think. So you kind of uh, stated already you changed your focus from the living community, but you also changed to a dead man, so-called. So why was that particular dead man that uh, Toro became your choice? What made you to focus on him specifically? So he's been... Henry David Thoreau was a 19th century author who wrote this book that's called Walden. Um, And it charts his life um, living by the shores of a pond in 
what is Massachusetts now um, and was then. Um, that book has had a really central role in sort of environmental thought in the United States and, and around the world. Um, it's been seen as kind of an icon for uh, an image of like living in tune with nature, right? He went to the woods and he built his own house and he um, bathed in the pond and he grew beans. And um, in that sense, he's been kind of an icon for simple living as a response to uh, certain forms of industrialization and um, other other um, transformations in economic life sort of um, after the uh, settlement of the United States. I, I thought that that was important, that, that his place for environmentalists um, had been really central in some ways in, in creating a vision of environmental politics that would try to protect places, that would um, understand um, ecological communities as valuable for their own sake, which is really important, I think, and and that would um, uh, motivate us humans to play our uh, role in them well in our ecological communities. But I also thought that the way he had become an icon, especially in 20th century U.S. politics, uh, just left a lot of what he was offering out. Um, I say in the beginning of the book that his reception in the 20th century was really deeply shaped by white supremacy. And, and I think that's true. I mean, that's why I wrote it. Um, uh, because, of course, there's this other strand of his reception, which comes in the 20th century, especially through Gandhi and Martin Luther King, about political resistance to unjust laws and to injustice more broadly. Um, and I sort of, uh, so they're, they're in his reception, there's been this kind of strand in nature, nature writing, um, environmental thought and politics, and there's been this strand in sort of a, a movements for liberation in the 20th century, especially in resistance of, to white supremacy. And I, I just had the feeling that the environmentalists especially really needed to see the ways that Thoreau was invested not in a kind of... Um, environmentalism for the rich, which uh, had often been the way that these forms of uh, environmental thought developed in the 20th century without attention to um, especially economic and racial justice. They, they needed to see that Thoreau was doing more than, than valuing the birds and the trees, which of course he was doing, but that he was really offering a vision of a just multi-species community. So, so um, everyone who belongs in a place uh, ought to be in right relationship to one another, including birds and frogs and trees and also um, enslaved people on the run who he hosted in his home and uh, workers in the uh, factories in Lowell and uh, farmers in Concord who were indebted to a newly financialized economy. Um, he was worried about all of that because he saw economy as going wrong in a really important way. And he saw the effects of that on ecological and uh, human communities. And so it was really this like integrated vision of, of an environmentalism that can re um, represent all of that, um, the justice that's due to every member of our ecological communities um, that, I, that I wanted to retrieve in a way 
from Thoreau's thought for contemporary um, political struggles, I guess. So you are actually making a very strong link between political resistance and justice and so-called simple way of living. So you kind of complicated this idea because normally it will be looked as just enjoying the nature and smelling the flowers or whatever else. But you're making this connection to political resistance and justice. It seems like the issue of justice is central to your idea. And when you're talking, you're also talking about him not being either either or kind of a saint of the woods or someone committed justice in human communities, but rather you are making the unification. You are saying uh, that Thoreau was somebody for whom nature, piety, and political commitment to justice cannot be separated. He is one man, one life. So what are the main points that made you argue against the two Thoreaus and present his image as one man, one life? You started already mentioning this, but I would like you to uh, kind of dig a little deeper in this whole idea of, of political resistance and justice and how it's exhibited in in image of this man as one man, one life. Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll just say something about kind of the arc of the book, because I think it, it gets at this issue in a way. Um, so the book is organized um, as, a, as a reading of Walden, uh, sort of an offering, a new reading of Walden in a way, like here's a book you might have thought you understood, but um, read my book and you might understand it a little differently. And in order to do that, I, I do, um, there's a series of five chapters and the first three are arguing against sort of caricatures of Thoreau as first a social, second a political, and third a religious. So, so in the chapter about sociality, I'm really writing especially about Thoreau's relationships in the woods. And this um, came out of a sense that um, people, often, people often say that when Thoreau uh, moved to the pond, that he lived alone. And he even writes this way sometimes in the book. But there's another way of seeing that place, which is as a site of an important community, one that he took as exemplary, which is to say um, it was a community in which there were members he wanted to imitate, members he really admired, members whose um, way of life he thought would be good to pursue. Um, so some of those members are um, animals and plants that he, you know, people know that he really cared a lot about. But one of the things that really motivated me to write the book was just learning a lot more about the history of Walden Woods myself. Um, and, and that as a lot of wild places in the United States, um, of course, it was occupied before white settlers um, came there. And Thoreau knew this, um, both about indigenous people who had lived there before. Um, he was really... Um, quite interested in and transformed over the course of his life by learning more and more, including language um, of indigenous peoples in the United States. And also, just in the generation before Thoreau, um, the Walden Woods had been a site where people who were enslaved and then freed around the time of the American Revolution and conquered lived on their own, independently, made their own way. So at the time at, they were enslaved, and then at the time they achieved their freedom, um, they moved to the woods rather than pursuing lives of service and conquered. And for uh, I think it's almost 40 years. I can't remember the exact dates right now. But for 
a generation, they made their own way. And um, Thoreau knew that and, and writes about them and also writes that their spirits, in a way, still occupied the woods. Um, and I took him to be saying about those people that, that they had done something important, which was um, enacted their own freedom. Um, to be a person who has been enslaved and then to make yourself free is quite a profound human act. And those people had been the people who lived in the woods right before Thoreau. So I sort of take him and their spirits and the frogs and the birds that and the trees that Thoreau is involved in relationships with as, as a a model of, of what a community might be that includes all of its members. So when we say he went there to live alone, we isolate him from the relationships he was actually trying to pursue. And in that way, Walton is, d describes a form of sociality, whereas people think he's kind of asocial. So then in the second chapter, I'm doing something similar about politics. Um, because he was involved, people think that going to Weldon Woods was apolitical, but in fact, it was a sort of um, investment in controversies uh, among abolitionists in the period about what just labor ought to look like. And then in the third chapter, I'm doing something similar with religion. So whereas people think of um, Thoreau as a religious, I'm trying to interpret his critique of Christianity, especially as a form of theological reasoning, as a as a participation in a in contestation over the significance of the Christian gospel. So in in these three chapters, I'm really trying to say Thoreau had a form of sociality, he had a form of politics, and he had a form of religion. And those were re really central to what his life at Weldon Pond meant. Then in the fourth and fifth chapters, I'm trying to say something um, sort of that goes beyond that in a way. So if he was had a sociality and a politics and a religion, what is that? And the fourth chapter is called political asceticism, which is the term I sort of came up with to try to describe this form of social political, religious life. And there I'm really contesting this idea. People assume that asceticism of, of the kind that renounces good things um, is a way of retreating from sociality and politics. Um, but I try to argue in that chapter, political asceticism, that if we take Thoreau's case, we can see that it's actually a, a reinvestment in, a, in, a, in another kind of community, another kind of politics. And um, then in the last chapter, I try to respond to a worry some people have quite reasonably as, about asceticism, which is that it's sort of um, dour, negative, because it refuses things. Um, and I try to say that it's never, um, not never, there are many important cases where ascetics renounce things for the purpose of pursuing a higher good, as they often call it. And, and I try to say that Thoreau's renunciations by leaving town to go to the woods, by giving up certain things to drink and only drinking water, by living on as little money as he could, those things were renunciations, but they were always oriented by what I describe as delight in true good. So this last chapter is about delight and the form of um, enjoyment that, that he finds in the woods, the, the sort of goodness he experiences. Because I think one thing that really motivated the book was this question about whether 
the transformations that would be required by the end of slavery were possible and whether they would be good. So obviously for enslaved people, they would be very important. There were also people in the period who were afraid of the transformations that would be required. And Thoreau was saying, the end of slavery is not only going to provide justice for those who have been enslaved, the end of slavery is going to provide all of us with a much better form of life because we'll be able to take delight in the more just relationships that we have with one another. Um, So that's kind of the shape of the book and the reason that political asceticism is at its heart, because it's really trying to say Thoreau's asceticism wasn't just focused on his sort of self-formation. It was also oriented by these political questions about the um, uh, colonial war against Mexico, about the enslavement of people who had descended from those who had been kidnapped from Africa, and about the labor questions that were ongoing in the North. Um, yeah, sorry, that was kind of long. <laughs> no, that's, I, I do want to return a little bit more to the contemporary, uh, the, to, to the idea of political skepticism, because uh, it's clearly your one of the major arguments of the book, and uh, it, it can be linked to contemporary environmental politics. Uh, you posit that individual renunciation is central to our concern and actions related to climate change and other forms of environmental disasters. You write that uh, even the most seemingly lonely practices, as for instance, sitting alone in a room, writing as I am now, or reading as you are, contribute to the forms of society and politics that are to come. I was fascinated by this idea. And I was uh, hoping that you can elaborate on how your writing and our reading contribute to society and politics. Yeah, thank you. So um, I think this is, I mean, it's kind of an existential question for people who pursue study as their profession, right? Like, what am I doing when I sit alone in a room? Um, And how is it connected to the other things I care about out there in the world? that kind of existential question I'm really curious about, and it's one of the main reasons, one, one of the sort of motivators for this, um, this part of my writing, trying to figure, figure something about that out. I think, I think what the piece of the book that you just read that sort of insists that the, the practices that we do alone in a room uh, contribute to the form of, um, politics that is to come really hinges on a question about what politics is. So often when we talk about politics, what we imagine is sort of um, electoral politics, first of all, voting in elections and um, other kind of uh, large scale forms of participation. Uh, We also think about, in some cases, the kind of local politics in our communities, the uh, ways that we might try to, for instance, get um, zoning laws changed so that there could be uh, more public housing in our neighborhood or whatever else. There's there's all kinds of ways of thinking about what actions are political actions. I think one of the things I'm trying to say is that politics isn't just those sorts of formal um, interactions with the state. Uh, politics is about how we make the arrangements for living together in a really pretty broad sense. And when you take that vision of what uh, 
politics is, um, you can sort of see that self-cultivation is not its end, um, but how we go about becoming the people who we are is really important to what what kind of participants we become in the communities that we're part of. So it's really this kind of scalar point that that um, there are forms of politics at those vast scales. But most of us, you and I, are just living it somewhere, if we're lucky. I mean, there's a housing crisis in my city. I'll get to that in a minute. But um, we're just living somewhere. We have relationships with our family, with our neighbors, um, with the people we work with. And, and the question is, how do those, how does my relationship to myself and my relationship to those near companions, how, how does it meet these larger structural forces? I think that question is really big in our society right now because there are some major challenges, questions about whether we even can approach those larger structural forces as individuals, um, given the, the forms of life that we currently pursue. Um, but the point is really that they're, though they have that scalar distinction, it's still really important to, to how we go about making arrangements for living together well. What I prioritize, how I become a person who can recognize injustice in the world, how I become a person who can be accountable to someone when they tell me that there is an injustice being done, how those kinds of questions about who I am, they're not just selfish. They're about how I'm going to be in relationship to other people and therefore about how I'm going to contribute to what kind of community um, comes from those relationships. It actually sounds very hopeful, you know, because sometimes people feel that they have nothing to contribute. And I think you open door for other opportunities and, uh, by questioning the whole idea of what is considered selfish, it's rather not. It's thoughtful and can be very productive. I think it's 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 hopeful and it's encouraging in a sense. So Yeah, um, one thing I try to say in the book that is that a better future is neither secure nor out of reach, right? It depends on what happens. And what happens even in whatever way depends on who we are and and how we go about protecting our communities yeah exactly right um so you write that for thorough walden functions as scripture by having established a tradition of readers surrounded i thought it was beautiful so in a number of instances you suggest that writing is social and political like we just discussed you stated at first through attention to what is outside oneself Second, because it's always, almost, is directed to the reader and imagined community. And third, it is relational. Readers use books to enter relationship with authors, characters, and ideas like we just talked. You also write that in some cases, writing results in readers creating a community of interpreters around the text, which I thought was also very beautiful and provocative because we can interpret in a variety of ways. So if your book is intended to create a community of readers or interpreters, what kind of readers and interpreters would you ideally like to see? Yeah, thank you. I mean... I, I started out by saying I wrote the book because I care about a place. Um, and now, of course, I care about the place that I live in, too. And I find that um, my caring about this place 
and the sort of contemporary questions in it um, about labor justice, about housing, about environmental um, ecological flourishing sometimes feels a little bit like <laughs> the image I've been using is whack-a-mole, you know, when you're um, at the arcade and there's that game and the thing pops up and you have to like use the, the mallet to mash down the one that's popped up and then when another one pops up there. So for example, I'm involved in my labor union at my the place where I work and we're in a fight right now over restructuring. Um, and for example, in my neighborhood, there's a site where um, the government promised to build public, social, and affordable housing, and now the public housing is canceled, the social housing is on hold, and they're negotiating with the developers about what affordable means, um, giving the developers a large say in um, what it means to offer affordable housing. And then more broadly, of course, I live, at, not of course, I live on the continent we call Australia, and um the world's largest coal port is in Newcastle, and um, Australians are very concerned about climate change um, for obvious reasons, and there's a massive blockade of this port um, planned for November. So these three things, sort of that three scales, like there's like my labor issues in the place where I work, and then the housing for my neighborhood, and then the um, climate for the world, right? Like those three things, it sometimes like fighting all of them at once sometimes feels like whack-a-mole. Like I'm going to get, I'm going to make some success over here, but not over here. And then I like, I'm so tired from that thing. I don't know how to do this thing. Um, I think I wrote this book partly for people who feel like that, for people who feel like there's something more basic going on here. Why, why can't we just fight the one thing? Um, and of course, practically, I need to keep fighting the labor thing and I need to keep fighting for housing that people can afford and I need to keep fighting for the end of fossil fuels. Those are things I'm going to keep doing. Um, but I, I wanted a vision for myself, first of all, of, of a, a politics that was about all of that, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't ignoring the ways that environmentalism has sometimes been an environmentalism of the rich, and that wasn't ignoring that labor justice has to be something we pursue at the same time as ecological justice. I, I wanted all those things to hang together. And then I think I also wrote it um, for people who are wondering not only like, what's the form of politics that I'm that I that can integrate those things, but also how am I going to live well? Like, how am I going to enjoy myself? I'm only going to be here one time. Well, lots of people think lots of different things about that. But I feel like this life is precious to me. I'm like about to cry. Sorry. But this life is precious to me. All those things are devastating. And how? How am I going to enjoy it? And I think Thoreau really thought the answer to that question was, I... I'm gonna enjoy those things. I'm gonna find ways to protect the stuff that I love and to, to have a good time in the process, you know? Um, so I think I want readers who have that kind of longing for a politics that can integrate um, economic and ecological concerns and, and who wanna pursue that politics in a way they can really love. I want to ask you, what do you think is place for emotions in our scholarship? Should we allow emotions? Because there's, there was a debate how 
reserved we should be be and i think one of the attraction of your book for me at least was this presence of emotions so i'm curious what you think about the whole issue of what do scholars allow to enter our scholarship sure yeah i definitely had people respond to the book and to other work that i've done i i i get i often get peer reviewers who say that they're uncomfortable with my use of the first person pronoun um because i'm a, a character who enters the work that i write um i do that for kind of philosophical reasons about about how knowledge works and about how readers can interpret anything um Thoreau wrote in the beginning of Walden, I'm just going to look for the passage. Um, he wrote, I, on my own side, require of every writer, first or last, a simple and sincere account of his own life. And he said that because he thought that it was important for understanding anyone. Like, none of us has a view from nowhere with respect to knowledge. We're all situated somewhere. And when we tell readers that, where we're coming from, we give them the opportunity to actually understand what we're saying. Um, so it's partly about emotion, but it's more broadly about this sort of situated understanding of knowledge. It, the relationality too, that is how we develop our relations to something, to the issues that are important to us. And I think to me, this was the appeal, and I was drawn to this because I felt your presence. And that's why it's, to me, it's an important work because it's not cold and removed. It's emotional, it's relational, it's social, it's political, it's all together. Yeah. So. What do you think I should say to the people who, who <laughs> feel uncomfortable about the presence of the first person pronoun? I think they need to deal with their own emotions. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. The question would be why? I mean, do you have to be cold and removed to argue the cases that dear and to your heart? Yeah. So, I mean, well, I am attracted to poet philosophers, not just a philosopher analytical. Yeah. You know, so, um, sure. Um, anything else you would like to add the readers to know? Because... Um, what would you like to see happening next? Um, well, one thing is that the paperback of this book just came out. So it's a Cambridge University Press book, and that means the hardback was very expensive. The paperback is still expensive, but it is available now. So um, it's possible to buy the book. That's one thing I want to let people know. Um, and beyond that, I just think... Um, uh, this thing, this point we were just talking about, I really like ending there, which is... Um, it's it's possible to pursue the goods we really care about with with people who are doing that too, um, finding joining up with other people who care about those things can be not only um, important and effective but also a meaningful way to spend your life. You know, and not to be afraid to be human. Yeah, <laughs> which means to have emotions. Yeah, and to Thank let you yourself so care about things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate talking to you. And uh, I hope that um, your efforts, I know they're pretty humongous, but they will be effectively addressed and you will feel 
happiness and satisfaction from your work. Thank, Thank you, you so for much for reading, Alana. I really appreciate it. Thank you.